are live. Hello, Alejandro. How are you? Good, Hugo. Thank you for having me. Good. So great to have you on the show. You are the first photographer in the in the podcast, but not the first Latin American with Maria Paula, who is from Argentina. Yes. You are from Mexico, right? Where are you right now, Alejandro? So, yes, I was born in Dominican Republic, but then moved to Mexico and now permanently here. I'm in Monterey, which is a big town just south of Texas, mm. big industrial town. There's a lot of car building stuff, steel, beers. Tesla is doing a big plant here mm. this year so or next year, I think. So, yeah, a lot of kind of a mixture of Pittsburgh and Detroit, if you're familiar with the U.S. Mm. But yeah, and Monterey is also the... I think the second biggest city in, in Mexico after Mexico City and it, right uh, before Guadalajara. And, mm. yeah, it, it, it's been changing. I would say that right now, I think we're the fifth largest. There's Guadalajara is bigger now. León, Guanajuato, I think is bigger. There is a city in Guanajuato and then there's another in Querétaro, uh, mm. I think is bigger. There, yeah, it's been crazy. Like these industrial towns have grown massively around Mexico. But yeah, it's top five. Yeah, and economically as well, like the, there are many companies and yes. it's a big sector there also because it's so close to US. Yeah, yeah, and economic uh, push, yes. I think it's mm. maybe the second biggest economically because of its closeness to the US border. Fantastic. This is the first time we are doing this live on YouTube as well. And so we're on Twitter and YouTube and this is the recording. So we will later edit the episode and everybody can listen on the different podcasting platforms. It's a good way to do it twice and also let people join the recording, which is more natural. Yeah. And, and Alejandro, I'm, I'm very excited to have you here because you, you are a super talented uh, photographer. You have a career that expands uh, I think over a decade, right? Yeah. And you have won many awards. You are in many, you're held in many collections, publicly, public and private collections. Mm -hmm. And you also are an entrepreneur. You are championing <laughs> photography through fellowship. And to be honest, this is how I got to know you. You are also combining AI with the photography world through the post-photographic movement, which I, yeah. I find that super interesting. So we have so many things to, to talk about today. But Alejandro, can you tell us how were those early years as a photographer? Sure. So I started my professional career more in the service industry. I have a bachelor degree in leisure studies. So in, in Spanish, it's a funny name, uh, Administración del Tiempo Libre. Uh, mm. <laughs> that's the name of my degree. And I worked in hotels, restaurants, and mom-and-pop type uh, businesses. And I also studied music, which I'm horrible at, by the way. <laughs> but I did two, like, two years of music. And it was, I think that was kind of my looking for an artistic side of myself, which I feel was there way from when I lived in Dominican Republic. I, the school that I went to was very inclined towards artists' uh, ideas and critical thinking. So there was something there. I thought it was music, but it really didn't pan out. And then almost 10 years into my like career uh, in the service industry, I started uh, doing photography just as a hobby on the weekends. And then I landed in a workshop, like a theory workshop, actually, about photography and how to analyze images. And that workshop showed me that there was this whole world that you could build with a photograph and that there's a whole world in what you can say and there's a whole world of where that photograph can circulate and be distributed there's photography museums there's photography collectors there's photography festivals there's a whole array of genres of photography and for me, that was eye-opening because for me, photography was what I found in my family album. And that was it. It was a, a storing of memories or, and, and a storing of stories. And that just made me 
fall in love with the medium. I left everything. I, I stopped working in the service industry and I started doing photographs and I felt I was late. I was 27. So I came in with a big rush and I didn't want to do an, a second degree. I didn't want to go back to school. So uh, the nearest thing that I found was working in a museum and an archive of photography. That really was like my master's degree in art. I learned everything there was to do to be a photographer, how to do a project, how to do good photographs, how to print them, how to frame them, how to store them, how to conserve them for the future, uh, how to write about them, how to display them, everything. Mm -hmm. And I did that for five years at that museum. I ended up doing curations for them, doing contests for them, bringing more archives to be donated for the museum. Like I learned all you needed to learn to be a photographer in the realm of fine art, because photography, as many of the arts have different ways in which you can practice. For me, it was about photography as a fine art, as, as a medium of expression, of personal expression. And after that, I went and I did do a master's degree in visual studies at the university. I started teaching in university. I did that for three years. I was always passionate about books. And so I started my like doing self-publishing and I eventually created an imprint and I published Latin American artists. That's kind of like the start in all that. I'm learning about photography, thinking about photography, and I'm doing my own art. I, I've been really lucky that the projects that I've done have resonated with the, the general public and with the art world. And yeah, we can talk in parts of that. The projects that I've been doing are long form projects. Sometimes it takes five years to do a project, some, sometimes seven years. And I've been doing a lot of that for the past 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I find very interesting that division or that clear separation between fine art photography and, I mean, there is, of course, hobbies or things that people do for their own. But there is also, there are many people working as a photographer for different purposes. And actually, that's a question I had. I wonder if you ever had like a job as a photographer, like for a magazine or for, there are, there are many jobs out there that require yeah. photographers. But it seems like you, from the, the get-go, went through the fine art side. Is that correct? Yes, I did both. I, I actually have a lot of work as a commercial photographer. The interesting thing for my career was that because I was focusing more in my fine art practice, the commercial jobs that I were getting were very aligned to my vision of how I see the world. So I would do assignments for magazines, newspapers from the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Washington Post. But most of the time, those commissions had a relationship with the work that I already do mm -hmm. as an artist. And my work, yes, it's in fine art, but it's kind of documentary. So it's an in-between an aesthetic experiment and a conceptual documentary experiment. So it's not just pure beauty. It's beauty in the everyday and in social issues that somehow I felt attracted to talking about. But I bring not a journalistic vision where it's not about telling the news. It's about a subjective understanding of the problem that is in front of me. Okay. And Alejandro, that clear purpose that you're trying to share, that message, did you get that from the get-go or was that something that you formed over time because of things that were happening in your environment? How did you come up with that vision for your, your photography? Sure. It's a mix of things. First, it's the place where I live. Latin America mm -hmm. is a place where there's a lot of social tension. There's a lot of urban tension issues that are constantly making you feel vulnerable and in contact with everything that surrounds you. You don't normally live in a bubble where nothing happens to you. You're always, if it's not a political issue, it's a social issue, it's an urban issue. It's almost like we are in a perpetual state of change and building. Latin America is not finished. It's always mm -hmm. changing. And that I think 
was part of the inspiration for a lot of my work in how did I perceive it? Because you can live it and not see it. But for me, it was that shift from the Dominican Republic to Mexico. It was this change of culture, even though both Latin American countries, they're very distinct cultures. Mm -hmm. And that shock really opened my eyes to, wait a minute, like this is completely different to the way that I was supposed to understand the city. This is very different to how relationships happen in Dominican Republic and in Mexico. Why is that? And so the questions started to come out and come out. And then I became really focused, thanks the, the master's degree I did in visual studies, where we examine like everyday things and we ask the questions, why is this here? Why did this happen? Why do we see it this way? Why has art represented the city this way a hundred years ago? Why is it different now? And so I, w I prepared myself to ask the right questions, uh, both empirically and theoretically. That combination really helped me form the vision that I have uh, for my art. Yeah, I can relate. I'm originally from Venezuela and I moved to Mexico City when I was years old. And as you said, it's a very different countries. I mean, we speak the same language. It's Spanish. There are similarities, of course, but there are also very big differences in mm -hmm. terms of the country, how things work, the culture, how people behave and they communicate. And yeah, you're right. Latin America is always changing. I was looking at some economic data from the 50s, the 60s, in this case about Venezuela, and it's, there are many reasons why, but it's changed so abruptly, and, and also in Mexico, so depending on who is the, the government in turn, what are the things happening in the world, and how that affects Latin America in different ways. And that's a very interesting thing that you are documenting, as you say, with your photography. Um, and Alejandro, when you say some of your projects take five, seven years. Why is that? What is the reason that they take so long? Because as I was practicing, I was also learning and trying to figure out what photography is as an art form. And one thing that I was obsessed with was how were photographers constructing ideas of projects previous to me? When I see what was happening, say, in the 70s, 80s, maybe up to the 90s, it was a very much single-sided approaches to problems or to projects. There's a project on deforestation, and you go and you photograph deforestation, and you might stay there six months, eight months, document that. But for me, what was more interesting was, okay, that is the surface of the problem. What else happens around that? Like, can I picture the town meetings where they decide what part of the forest is going to be torn down? Mm -hmm. Can I photograph and take portraits of the family members of the people who work in the logging industry? Can I then photograph the houses where those logs are being used in? And so it's, a building of a project that is very much aligned with, I think, our information society in which we live, where there isn't one truth. There's many truths. Mm -hmm. So I want to, as much as I can, present a project from 10 different perspectives. And it's in those 10 different perspectives that the poetic mm -hmm. starts to emerge. Because for the first time, it's like, oh, yes, I'm talking about deforestation. But have you ever thought of deforestation next to town meetings? And then that's like, oh, I didn't see that relationship. Well, this is my po like poetic proposition. You see these different things that you are not connecting. Hence, you can't understand the problem in a different way. Yes, you might be awed. Oh, my God, that's an amazing image. But that's the surface. When you see all these other problems or situations or causes and effects next to each other, then that's the proposition. That's a new way of thinking contemporary photography as a layered proposition in line with 
how we see the world today. We're the Google generation. You type in house and there's a million answers to what house is in Google. Mm -hmm. So as an artist, we are supposed to not offer answers, but points of views. Mm -hmm. So here are 10 points of views of the same issue. So it takes a lot of time <laughs> to, to, yeah. to get that. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine you need to schedule it pretty well. If you want to go into these town meetings, you need to know when they happen. Exactly. And, and, and probably you need to ask permission and they will be like, hey, but why is this? I, I don't, and, and also like photographing people that might be, yeah. you need their permission. So there yeah. are so many things that play a role. And I guess the logistics of all yes. these, because now that you are very well established, I can imagine you have uh, more resources to go on more challenges and more, let's say, mm -hmm. complex projects. But mm -hmm. early on, Alejandro, what were the things that were complex or challenging in the early days compared yeah. to now in the position you are these days? What, what would you say was complex, challenging? Yeah, that's a really good question because it's definitely not the same to like when you're an emerging artist to build projects then when you have a little bit of a track record and maybe some sales support and institutional support, it's just a whole different ballgame. For me, I was all in, maybe a little bit more than I should. I'm really obsessive. Like I don't do things halfway. So that was an extra value that I would bring to my building of my career. I would just not think of anything. Every single dime that I was making in any commercial work or working at the museum, everything went back to gasoline, traveling, buying film, developing film, printing, and just doing all that I needed to do. It was a big sacrifice. It was, I would say, five, six years, absolute devotion to my practice. And I think it accelerated my path and mm -hmm. I was getting awards and scholarships and not scholarships, grants from businesses, from the government to do my work because I showed a lot of dedication and a lot of results. Mm -hmm. So by the second year, not even the second year, by the first year I into being a photographer, I had already a solo exhibition at a museum. I had a book deal. I had a traveling exhibition that went to five museums around Mexico. And that was only one year into my practice. But mm -hmm. it was just, I was obsessed. And I still am. And of course, there were many no's. I was knocking on a lot more doors than I do now. But it was, it was a challenge. But I just felt that I had to do it. Like, I had no option. Mm -hmm. It was that or just boring myself to death yeah. <laughs> <laughs> working at a, at a restaurant. I was like, no, this is, it's all or nothing. I was 27. I felt like I was late into the game. So I was like pushing, pushing, pushing. And I did not live of my art until six years into my practice. I did get a lot of recognition and a lot of exhibitions. And I was published in magazines and newspapers, but I was making zero money. It was just money to do more art. Okay. And then eventually when I started working with galleries, that's when I had a little bit of more, I would say, olgura, a little bit more of breathing room, breathing room. <laughs> yes. To think of bigger projects. I started traveling and doing projects, not only in Mexico, I started going around to different countries, but it's a path. And I see a lot of the people that I started with at that time, and they're not in art anymore. It's not a path that is nice to many people. Yeah. It's really hard. And you have to be obsessed and believe that this is the only thing that you can do in your life right. to be able to support the hardships and the dry spells. I mean, yeah, it's really yeah. fucking hard. <laughs> so basically you didn't have a plan B. It was the only path you wanted to pursue. Yes. And but Alejandro, you said you were knocking on doors, getting a lot of no's, but you were knocking on doors. And I'm wondering, you, you said you got grants, you got support from the government, from companies. But this is also a big amount of logistics and, and knowledge that you need to know to knock on those doors, right? Mm -hmm. Where to knock? And how did you 
learn this because I feel like many artists and I've been talking to many artists and that's not clear. Like, yeah. okay, you make your art and maybe you share it, but that's not all. There are other ways, there are other options. And how can, can artists learn this? Is this something they taught you in a school when you got your master's or this is something you were talking with other artists that made it? How did you learn this, this, this part of the process to actually yeah. execute it? There's several answers to that. One is curiosity and the lack of opportunity being in Mexico and trying to be part of the art world. That, mm -hmm. some people can see it as the worst condition to try to be an artist. But for me, it was the perfect opportunity because I was in Mexico. Things are way cheaper here than in New York, LA, Paris, London, etc. And I was trying to break into those markets, like to be seen there, exhibit there. But I had this backing that I didn't need to make that much money to be able to play in those arenas. That was a strategic thing because I was getting invitations to go to these cities. But I was like, I don't think I'm just going to kill myself if I try to do that because it's just so expensive and the competition is so fierce. I can still compete, but from the fringe. It implies two, three more times of work if you're there. That's yeah. the honest truth. But it's affordable to do it. So that was one strategy that I did and how I learned it, it was by putting myself outside, I scrutinized how to be in the inside. So I paid even more attention to how the system works, how the art world, art world works, asking questions to my peers, looking at how they're selling their work, how they professionalize everything. There is no other way. You have to be obsessive about this shit. And then the other thing was, my strategic decision to not go to university, but to go and work at a museum. In the museum, everything happens. You have grant proposals for funding for the museum. You have curation that is happening there. You see how the curators work. You see how they write. You see how they develop an exhibition. You see how they talk about scale, how they talk about printing, how about they talk about technique. So I was there. It wasn't my job to do those things, but I was 100% listening <laughs> in and paying attention and working sometimes extra hours just so that I can learn all mm -hmm. the things that you need to learn to be an artist. So that was also another strategy. And then just self-education. Like I was reading a lot of books about the history of photography, the history of art. And I was listening to a ton of interviews from artists. That's something that really helped me because in those interviews, they talk about their practice, why they're doing what they're doing. They talk about their hardships. And in those conversations, I'm like, oh, I relate to that. I'm building this toolbox and adding from this artist, this, from this artist, that, from this artist, that. Mm -hmm. And I built a kit that helped me survive and, and thrive in the art world, even being from this town in the middle of nowhere and have a voice in the mainstream, which is, I, I wouldn't say that I'm there. I'm still El Mexicano inside of the art world. It's not an easy thing to be an outsider and to be a Latino. You always have to battle extra everything, but that's fine. That's what it is. And it makes you unique. It makes you unique yes. as well. Yes. You can see it as, again, a cumbersome situation, or you can see it an, as an opportunity. And I've decided to see it as an opportunity. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I think it's very inspiring for many Latin Americans that maybe are in their 20s and they are going through what you lived at those years. Very interesting. And Alejandro, we went through your beginnings, how you got interested in photography, all you went through, how were those five, six years. But then you are also a very established figure in the digital space, in the NFT space. So I wonder, how was that? When did you discover NFTs? How did you enter this new world? Let's call it that way. How was that? Uh, sure. What would that happen? I think the seeds were planted 
when I was actually working in the archive, but going to give like a little bit of background. My main job was digitizer of the archive. So I was scanning photographs from the 1800s up to the 21st century. And that was the dawning of Google Maps and the internet as, as this place of information and sharing information. Back, I remember in 2005, I started several projects where I was using the internet as a camera. That was my train of thought. I was going to places that I couldn't photograph and using the internet to compile collections and ideas. And right from there, for me, I saw the potential of how you can build projects through the internet. And then I would say in 2012 to 14, I really got into the idea of like my main presence through my website. So that was another like opening. And my partner, she's a psychoanalyst and She's been trying to put psychoanalysis in like the mainstream of Mexican culture. And she was trying to break the system. How do I imbue it into the internet in the realm of Mexico? So she was thinking of all these things and I had no clue that the internet had it. And so that really focused me in the idea of the website as a publishing tool. It's a tool to distribute art and that and it worked. I started getting jobs from around the world because of my website. And I was like, ah, that's really <laughs> interesting. A precursor to the idea of NFTs, I was being commissioned to do digital images, JPEGs. Mm -hmm. I would send them through the internet and I would get paid with digital money on my bank. And that's literally the NFT model. You <laughs> sell a JPEG, you get paid digital money for that. So Right from there, from 2012 to 14, when that started to happen for me a lot, I was like, yes, this is something that there's an opportunity here. And then I created the Carpoolers project in that in those years of 2012-14. And I experienced for the first time virality in the internet. That project went viral many times. It was something that like I had never experienced. The amount of people reaching out and the amount of connections that were happening and the amount of value that those images were creating as digital images was fascinating for me. That was like, again, the seed for me, the, my digital journey. But then in 2020, when the pandemic hit, I had like two solo shows in the US. I was going to be part of two big art fairs in Paris and New York. And everything got canceled. So it was like, oh, shit, what am I going to do now? And all these things that I had planned just went to dust. And I was just sitting in my home drunk all day uh, for a couple of months. And somebody reached out from WeTransfer, a good friend. He said, hey, there's a company called Foundation that they're thinking of selling digital art. I'm like, oh, interesting. And they're like, would you consider something like that? I'm like, yeah, the carpoolers project has been circulating as digital art for a long time. I think that would be a good solid project to offer. And so I sent them three pieces, three images. Of course, it didn't sell because I had no clue what I was doing. We were, I think, maybe 10 artists on foundation mm -hmm. at that time. It was like a better a try for them. Yeah. And it didn't work. Maybe I was there from August, September, October, November. That initial website wait, was gone. It didn't work anymore. And I just didn't follow through. And then in January 2021, I, I started doing a lot of TikToks. And a lot of people started talking of NFTs. I'm like, wait a minute, that's what Foundation was doing. So I emailed them back. And of course, I saw the new website. And I'm like, oh my God, this has exploded. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It had become something huge. They were like, yeah, but you need an invite. So I started to look for invites oh. and eventually found an invite with a photographer. And I got on the platform and I minted three pieces. Back then, it was crazy crazy expensive. I think I spent $400 wow. per mint and then another 400 per listing because yeah. you used to yeah. just mint. And if you want to put a buy now or 
put it for auction, you had to pay again. So that was like $3,000 for three NFTs. Yeah. It was a lot of money. That's all that I could do at that time. And of course, nothing. I sold nothing because, and now in retrospect, I understand I had no clue what I was doing. Like this was a new culture that had emerged, the Web3 culture, that I had no idea how it worked, what it was about, what was the philosophy behind it. I understood my value of my digital work because of the virality part of it. I was like, if these images have circulated through the internet, it means that people value them as digital objects. Yeah, right. But that idea was not exactly aligned with what the value of an NFT was. It took me months to really take another deep dive and basically start my career from zero. It didn't matter that I'm in the SF MoMA, in the Getty Museum and all these private <laughs> and public collections. It was like, no, no. What do you mean in this new world? Yeah. And mm -hmm. so I, I think I came at it with no respect at the beginning. And then I understood, no, wait a minute. If you really want to be a part of this space, you have to respect it, understand it, and find a way to entice conversations that are aligned with the values that are shared in the NFT space or the crypto space at large. And so it took me to, again, become obsessed. What is this place? What does it mean? How does it work? What are the historical precedents to it? And I think by the time that I was ready mentally, I found sales and it was a good amount of sales and success with the carpoolers. It sold out in about a week. I was collected by people like Def Beef, Louise from Fingerprints DAO, mm -hmm. and yeah, a bunch of really important collectors in the space that immediately showed so much support for what I was doing. That made me stay. I was like, wait a minute, this is huge. This is not an amazing opportunity for me as an artist, but for the art world at large. I've always wanted to offer or be part of something that opens opportunities, maybe because of being an underdog and being outside. Mm -hmm. I was like, this sounds like a place where we can offer opportunities to more artists. That made me just fall in love with the space and think, what can I do to help others find the opportunities that I just found mm -hmm. in the space? No, that's such an interesting journey. I think it's a good proof that it was not just about being there at the right time, because you were there pretty early when Foundation yeah. actually had, you said, like around 10 artists. It was a better uh, product. But then you came back and then you tried again. You had to pay this crazy amount of fees and you didn't find success. But you, then you persevered there and tried again until finally you found your people, you found your, your crowd. I think that's a recurrent theme in general in the space. So many people think it's, oh yeah, you were there early and that's it. And that's not necessarily true. Yeah. In that project, Alejandro, I really wanted to ask you about carpoolers because I think it's such a unique, special, and as you said, has this virality. And it's clear why, but can you tell us the idea of it? And you said you actually created that project back in 20. 14, 12, uh, 2012, mm -hmm. 2014, and then it lived through the years and actually you ended up minting it in the blockchain later. So it mm -hmm. has a special story. But yeah. the story behind it, what was it, uh, Alejandro, that made you create Carpoolers? Sure. In 2010, I started the master's degree and finished in 2012. By that time, I had a lot of projects and a lot of projects had to do with the city of Monterey and how it was it being suburbanized and it was growing in a rapid, crazy rate. It was also at the same time that we had the drug war here in, in mm -hmm. Mexico. It was really a bad situation here in, in the north of Mexico. So there was a social thing happening. I would say that I wanted to find stories that talked about different ways in which Mexico is built. And the projects that I had done were of houses and like suburbs and people that were dreaming the American dream of home ownership. 
One of the problems that comes with home ownership is transportation. I would witness them trying to travel to the city by bus, by car, and it was really difficult for a lot of these people. It took me two years to find a way to really show how difficult it is to live that dream of owning a house in the outskirts of the city. I was commissioned by a research institute. It's called Colegio de la Frontera. They wanted to see how people use cars in the border. They gave me 12 research papers. I read them and basically I was going to be like their illustrator of the issues that they were addressing. I, I started doing a lot of things. I started driving to work with people and photographing that. I started photographing traffic. I started documenting how people park their cars. I started photographing how people pimp their cars and make them nice. All these like different ideas of the car. And while I was photographing traffic, I was on bridges and buildings looking down at the traffic. <laughs> and one of those days, I just peered down and I saw a car pooler. I saw a construction workers in the back of the truck and I, boom, immediately photographed them. That's actually carpoolers number one is the first photograph that I did of the project. I was like, oh my God, this is something that is part of the Latin American culture at large. The idea of traveling in the back of a truck mm -hmm. is something that all Latin American countries share and North American countries too, maybe more in rural areas because it's illegal to do it. But yeah. it's an experience that I think a lot of us have experienced. So I felt something interesting was happening there, maybe took one or two more that day. And I was on a commission, so I didn't have too much time to think about it. But later, I would say maybe two or three months later, I went back to the images. I didn't continue the project. I just took the images. I came back to the images and I started to think, what did it really mean? What is it that I'm looking at? Slowly, you ask these questions and sometimes you don't have the immediate answer, but you ponder on them. Eventually, things started to come up. These are the people that live in the houses that I had photographed five years prior. So there's a connection, a storyline that adds to what I've done before and where I'm going. And then where are they going? They're going to work to one of the richest parts of the city that I had also photographed for another project. I'm like, here's a connection between one project and another project. And then personally, this image reminded me of my grandfather. He was a construction worker mm -hmm. and all his life, he would travel this way. He had a Ford F-150 and the people would show up at his place and he would put them in the back of the truck. It was something that I had witnessed from a young age. That for me, and again, this is an obsessive person saying, I'm going to do a project because there's relationship with yeah. what I'm photographed. I can't do something and not have something connected mm -hmm. with it, either a project or personal. Once I convince myself of that, I'm like, okay, the project is there. Let's go do it. <laughs> and so I would go once or twice a week. Uh, Mondays and Fridays were the best days. And I would be there from seven in the morning to nine in the morning and just stand on a bridge, one mm -hmm. lane. And it was luck because there, there are four lanes and sometimes they're going on the other lane. Uh, I would maybe get two or three good photos a day and that's yeah. it. I would just go back, go back, go back. After a year, I think I accumulated a, a good amount, about a hundred really wow. good photographs. And then it was like, okay, there's a project here. There's something interesting that I want to mention about photography. You think of photography as this artistic tool that is art when you see something that's captured that's amazing, right? And that's a heritage from Cartier-Bresson, a French photographer that talked about the decisive moment. This uh, photography becomes poetry or art when you capture something that has many things happening at the same time, but it's almost impossible for you to capture that. Then that is the sensibility of being a photographer that you can see all these mm -hmm. things happening and you're able to capture that moment. But as photography grew older, that kind of slipped out and it's more about, can you actually build a story from many different parts? And yes, here and there you have decisive moments, but is in the consistency of having 
a hundred good images where the real photographer comes to play because mm. what has happened is that everybody now is a photographer. I mean, here's my this cell phone. It's a camera. Everybody's a photographer. How do you say that you're a photographer and show that you actually have a vision? Well, you develop a project and you show that you didn't have a lucky shot. You had a hundred lucky shots. You were looking for these precise moments. When I build the carpoolers, the first two or three images were amazing. And I could have published that and it would have been, oh my God, those are amazing images. But that wasn't a project. That mm -hmm. was reportage. That was, oh yeah, how lucky was Alejandro? But no, if you dedicate and you like pursue something with dedication, then the repetition shows that this isn't a coincidence. It's actually somebody thinking of something and pursuing the production of that idea. And yeah. that for me is where you go from being just a hobbyist to actually being an artist photographer. I know that's amazing. That's a fantastic explanation, Alejandro. So many things uh, in mind, what you said, this phenomenon of the construction workers going to work, it's something that's very typical from America in general, because I, I live in Europe and it's very hard to find these pickup trucks. It's like very common thing. In a way, as you said, it was hard to get some good shots, but it's so common that you can take two or three in two hours. So people yeah. can get a feeling they are not from America, how often we see these pickup trucks going yeah. to set to work in different places. Yeah, that's very, very exciting. And one question, this idea of the series, the big collection in photography, is this a common thing, Alejandro, what you just mentioned, or is this something rare that you find a photographer that has 150 photographs? Is it common or not so much in the photography world? Yeah, I'll give you a little bit of context to how I think this came to happen. When photography started to become institutionalized and people wanted to be a photographer, and go to university to study photography, you can't graduate with two or three good photographs. You have to say what you're going to do during the whole semester. You have to say, this is my thesis. This is my idea. I'm going to go out and pursue it. You can do it at the beginning, or you can just be out there photographing and then come back and say, okay, this is what I'm doing because of what you captured. You either do it at the beginning or you do it at the ending. But that institutionalizing of photography made us pass from being decisive moment photographers to project photographers, right. where it's the sum of the parts that is what is important and not just one good image capture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And a great example moving forward to the fellowship, which is uh, something I really want to touch the collections you have released there. It's a great example of these series, these collections that have a story behind it. And I really love fellowship, especially the post-photographic series that you have started recently. Can you tell us how did that idea start? How did that start fellowship and what is it about for those that aren't familiar? Sure. I want to mention, you pointed out this idea of the series and you asked, Is it common for this to happen in photography? That was actually one of the things that I felt an instant relationship with the NFT space mm. because everybody was talking about collections and these grouping of cohesive images. That's exactly what we do mm. <laughs> in photography. This right. is the way that contemporary photography works. It's about building projects and then you release a book or you release an exhibition. So instantly I was like, yes, this is the digital version of how we already practice photography. Right, right. This isn't an invention. It was like, it's the way it is right now. So it, it worked that way for photography. But if you look at art paintings or different kinds of art, that wasn't the case, except no. for generative art. Which is, exactly. It's also working that way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Painting is a little harder because of the timing yeah. uh, that it But there are painters that do work in series. A lot of the pop art artists worked in series, but it's not the common. The series is maybe 15 pieces or 20 pieces yeah. at the most. But anyways, back to how did fellowship form? In 2021, after I had done the sales with the carpoolers, and then I committed myself to 
do as many projects as I could to really understand the different mechanics of how NFTs can be made and sold. I, I started experimenting a lot. I went even to do a photo book where I was selling a pay paper, a page of the project. So if you wanted to buy the NFT, you would buy page one, two, three, four from the 100 page uh, project. I played with image and text. I did a ton of different projects. I did exhibitions in crypto voxels on cyber. I did everything that I could so that nobody would tell me, oh, what is it to do NFTs? It was like, I want to feel that I actually know exactly what I'm talking about. After that process, I was like, okay, now that I've lived through all these different iterations of how to do NFTs, now I can actually offer other artists the opportunity to come into the NFT space with the knowledge and experience that I have. I had this crazy idea. I'm a collector too. Physical objects, I buy photo books. I'm obsessed. I buy a ton of photo books, cheap and very expensive. I, I had this vision of if NFTs, if these artworks, digital artworks are one of one pieces, there's going to be just one opportunity to build the best NFT photo collection in the world. There's mm. only one opportunity. And whoever is crazy enough to do it, they're going to build the best collection ever. I started talking to several collectors and I ended up reaching Studio 137. He collected some of my carpoolers and from the other projects. He was a big, big generative art collector at that time. I told him my theory that there was this opportunity to look for the greatest photographers of the world and help them mint their work by pieces from their collections to build our collection that will be unrivaled. He was crazy enough to believe me, and we started doing that. We went out to the my heroes in photography. I went and I knocked on their doors and I said, hey, we're building a collection. It's a once-in-a-lifetime building of a collection. We will support you in the technology of how to do your smart contract, how to mint, how to be all that you need to do your NFTs. We'll help you with all that. We'll give you the support. We'll put in the funding to mint and everything. Because again, at that time, it was still expensive. And we will collect stuff from you. We started doing that for artists that we just really, really admired and knew that as soon as those NFTs would hit the market and we were really optimistic, everybody would want them because we thought everybody was going to know, oh, these great artists. Oh, yeah, everybody's going to want them. And of course, it's not like that. But we super, super believed in it. So we started doing that. We started buying and buying and buying. What happened was that the artist didn't get any traction because they had no idea what three was. They started coming back to us and saying, hey, would you consider maybe selling the rest of the collection for us? And we would give you a commission if you sell that. Like, mm -hmm. oh, okay. Like, that's an interesting yeah. thing. We were yeah. just going to be buying and building a collection, but this way we would be able to sell work, gain a commission and buy more work. It was a building a, a self-sustaining building of, a, right. of an art collection. Because of my experience with the museum, working with galleries, I knew exactly how to build a relationship with an artist, mm -hmm. how to build contracts, how to make everything so that it's professional, so that everybody gets paid and everything works out. That's what we started to do at the beginning of 2022. That's the program right now. In reality, we collect a lot and we try to support artists that we love and that we want to buy from them. That's the only reason that we're selling is because we want to buy from them because we believe in their art. It, it's a very particular organization compared to what's there in Web3 where platforms mainly just sell. That's their mission for us is we sell what we want to buy. We sell the stuff that we think is the best of the best. That I think shows a different way to build an NFT platform project. The proof is in the pudding. The projects that we do have very particular mechanics or ways 
even design wise, UX wise, we want to <laughs> buy in the platform. We build the platform that we want to buy yeah, in, yeah. you know, yeah, it shows, it shows yeah. clearly that it's very custom to each yeah. particular drop and it keeps the quality very high as you are collecting as well. I was not aware to be honest about the collective part. That's very, very mm -hmm. interesting. How many uh, shows, how do you call them? You call them shows or releases? Yeah. yeah, I would call them releases, collections. We've done a ton. I mean, maybe close to more than 50 up to now. Okay. Yeah. With a varied, our main thesis is photography is the most important artwork of the last 200 years. Photography changed everything. It changed painting, it changed installation art, it changed sculpture, it's changed drawing, it changed everything. Not accepting that is foolish because it really did. It changed the world. Yeah. Social media is based on photography. Education is based on photography. Advertisement is based on photography. This is the thing that transformed our world. We take that as a premise and we think, okay, how does photography relate to AI? How does photography relate to painting, to digital painting? How does it relate to generative art? We try to find artists who mm. are willing to think in those premises or that are already thinking mm. in that way. The project that we did with Dmitry Cherniak, it's about how photography was an art form that started the idea of automation. It was the art form where people were doing using mechanical means to create images that were not touched by the hand of right. the artist. There were artists in the 1910s and 20s, especially Laszlo Moholy-Nagy, that were thinking the camera as an automated machine that without the presence of the artist creates an image and right. it's a compelling image. And he was doing these things called photograms where you don't use a camera. It's all in the Lightroom and it's just a light sensitive paper. And he would put shapes and objects on top of paper and create an image without a camera. But it was a photograph and it was a ready made, an automatic mm -hmm. image that didn't, there was no drawing, there was nothing. It was automation. When we thought of that and we saw Dimitri's work and we said, hey, we were already selling work by Laszlo Moholinaj. And we told him, look at this work. There's a big relationship between you guys. Mm. Would you consider doing a project? That ended up being Light Years, which is a yeah. beautiful project that is acknowledging that little gesture that photography did. It, it didn't pursue it. Let's say it, it's not the main thing of photography, but it was there. Like yeah. it was an inception moment of thinking of automation through photography. He saw that and he delved right into that and traveled around the world, meeting the family of Lathal Moholinaj and going to the archive, going to the collection and all the stuff that they have in Switzerland, in the US. And he built a beautiful collection. That is thinking of generative art and photography. And then AI started to happen and we both Studio 137 and myself, we had already been collecting AI stuff, yeah. not for fellowship, but just individually. I think it was November 2022, we started collecting Rope Reinisto's work and we started building a relationship with him. I remember telling the team, everything's going to change. When I started seeing Rope's work, I'm like, yeah. that's it. There's no turning back. Photography is going to change. Art is going to change. And the rest is history. We started a beautiful relationship with him. He introduced us to ideas, to other photographers. And we started building the AI arm of fellowship that, again, the premise is that AI is a consequence of photography. We've mm. lived under 200 years of this hegemonic power of photography as the main thing that creates images in our mm. world. But we overpopulated uh, our world with photography. And what are we supposed to do with trillions and trillions of images? Right. Feed it to a machine that finds patterns of how we've pictured the world. And mm -hmm. that machine will now help us see the world in an ordered way. AI wouldn't be here if it wasn't for photography. That's why we're so like in enthusiastic about it. It won't kill it. It's going to transform it. It's going to bring new questions to the forefront. Yeah, no, that's amazing description, Alejandro. That's so insightful about fellowship and 
from the inside, how you're thinking about it. It's really, truly inspiring. I cannot let you go without asking you, where are we going in that area, in the AI? How do you think these tools are going to affect art and, and what mm -hmm. you're doing with fellowship, your art practice? What are you expecting? What, what do you think will happen, let's say, five, ten years from now? I know it's a complex question, but you can run your mind like completely... <laughs> be free and share your thoughts. Yeah. I don't have a vision of the future. I have uh, a curiosity of the present and the relationship with the past. Mm -hmm. I would say that's where most of my time and headspace is at. I think what happened with photography in the 1880s was that you had for the first time a picture making tool that became democratic, that more people had access to than ever before. There was a pencil, there, there was pens, and yes, all that existed, but it wasn't a full picture. Mm -hmm. You had to technically learn how to do a drawing to composite something that can relay an, a message. With photography, this leap forward into a, a machine that could create a full articulated image was groundbreaking. It was crazy. It really transformed the world. And so that access was something that was very important to rethink ourselves as a culture, as humanity. It let us see things that we had never considered in science, in culture, in space, in the micro level. And so my interest is this new picture-making tool, because that's what it is. It's a picture-making tool. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is it's from natural language to image, and that's the strangeness. We had never witnessed that before, and mm -hmm. that's why people are so... It's too simple. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's a different thing. It's language to image. It has to be... You are right in that it's uncomfortable to think about it because it had never happened before. Right. But the opportunity is that more people are now going to be able to consider themselves as picture makers. Yes, we have the phones and people are doing photographs, but it's about picturing reality. Here we have the opportunity to picture imagination. That is a whole new mm. problem that we're building for art and for culture as general culture, because we are picturing imagination right now. I would say the 90% of the images that are done are photographic and they have a relationship to reality because they're photographic. In the next five years, the 90% of the images are going to be imagination-based images. What is that going to do to us as a culture? Mm -hmm. Where the most images that we see are based on imagination and not facts and not reality. What does that mean? I have no idea. I'm scared. I'm excited all at the same time, because I don't know. I generally don't know, but a change is coming. It's coming. You just have to see the last 100 years and it's going to happen. So I don't know if that answers the question, but that's yeah, kind of no, no, that's, where my uh, head's at. <laughs> I really love that quote that we're picturing imagination. That's uh, fantastic. And yeah, who knows, but there will be a change. That's clear. And in many areas, not only in arts, in many other areas around exactly. the world, affecting everybody. And thanks so much, Alejandro, for, for your time. This was very, very insightful and inspiring, to be honest, and to learn about your journey. Before we close this episode, there is always a question I like to ask the guests. It's about artists. And who would you say are artists that inspire you? Could be photographers, could be AI artists up to you it's very open but yeah we would love to learn from you who are those inspirations for Alejandro yeah I mean right now I'm so inspired and obsessed with the artists that I'm working with in fellowship we just launched the daily.xyz project it's all AI video artists mm -hmm. I'm getting so many highs when I'm seeing these new artworks because one of the things that AI does it feels familiar it's almost mm -hmm. like I've seen this, like I have a feeling that I know this, but it's all new pixels. It's all new, but it's based on ideas of how we've seen the world. That 
crazy space is beautiful. And I love working with the artists from daily.xyz because they're always coming up with these crazy things. That for me is very inspiring because it's the art of today. I've been obsessed with history. I'm a geek when it comes to the history of photography and art, but I'm now transitioning to being obsessed with the artists that are doing things for today. And that one week they're obsessed with something and in two weeks they're doing something completely mm. different. Okay. Oh my God, that's so fascinating. Mm. I love to see that and that they're taking risk. And because in particular, this daily project, it's an experimental space. They're not answering to anybody. There, there's no expectations. It's like, use these tools and go crazy. Go <laughs> as far as you can. That brings such freshness to art because there's no, again, no commitment. It's just about experimenting. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm getting a real high with that right now. Can you that, name a few of those hundred of the upcoming projects? I don't want to name too many names because I'm going to miss out. There's 30 artists that right now are part <laughs> of the project, but people like AI Sam, he's doing some amazing, amazing, crazy stuff. Julie Wieland, she's an artist from Germany. She's experimenting with not the technical parts of AI, but more the storytelling part of AI. Just amazing stuff. There's an anonymous artist called Mindwank, who's amazing. He's built this mini series. For me, the first AI mini series to ever okay. exist. It's 10 episodes and okay. it's all about chickens. And <laughs> <laughs> it's very absurd, but it's amazing. For everybody listening, go and take a look. Mindwank. Uh, who else? I mean, there's just so many. I mean, That's okay. We got the quite a few names. And, okay, okay, okay. And Good. No, no worries. <laughs> but yeah, I'm looking forward to that exhibition. I'll, I'll look at it right after this. And yeah, the video thing is, is amazing. I've seen also Rup. I, I always get confused on how people pronounce his name. It's either... Rupi or no. Rope? It's Rope. Rope, okay. Rope, like Robert, but okay. Rope. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, I've seen him experimenting with video and the, oh, the whole movie, and it's fantastic. He's at the forefront of it all. He's been at this for three years, and the level of experimentation and knowledge is outstanding. We're more than honored to host his AI video stuff and his still work at Fellowship. I think he was one of the first artists doing also video maybe six months ago or seven months ago that was, I was like, what is this? How in the world are you doing this? And then he started creating the stories and that was a game changer. I felt that there is a new genre is being born in front of us right now. That's what's happening. And what is that genre? What is the themes that people use in that genre? What are the styles? What are the techniques? Nothing is cast in stone. That's why it's so exciting because mm -hmm. everybody's doing different things and everybody's trying to position themselves. There's no, this is the way. Because there is no, this is the way, there's massive opportunities to people come and experiment and question. I don't like this, but I can do this. I like that I can now do this and add this to that. Now in the daily project, there's artists collaborating that are meeting in the project. And they're like, mm. oh, I want to do something with you. You do good music. You do good editing. You could do good storytelling. I'll give you the images. You do the editing. And that's, I mean. Do you think this, sorry to interrupt you, but do you think it will become films? Like people can create their own films and it won't be seen as art purely, but more like, TV shows or movies and think this we're going is, in that direction? This is the big question. We don't know what AI video art is right now. Is it a continuation of video art? Is it music videos? Is it what? We don't know. One of the artists that we work with just did a whole AI video for Kuko, the Latin American singer, and it's with AI. And there's another one of the artists is working with a very big band and all the video is going to be AI. They're doing music videos. Then you have like people like Rope who are doing basically shorts. They're like yeah. short stories. Sure. We have like, Pierre from The Daily Project. He's done several longer form uh, mm -hmm. films that have been part of the Tribeca 
film festival and it's including AI already. This is the exciting thing is that it's not formed yet. We don't know what it's going to be. And maybe it's just going to be everything at the same time. And you're going to see AI experimental art. You're going to see music videos. You're going to see long form films and uh, documentary films. We're here to experiment and to see what happens. I think that's the beauty of what the project is, is that we were seeing that it was happening all over the place and we gathered all the artists together mm. and you can come if you want to see what's happening in AI video today, you come to daily.xyz and you can see, you can witness all the different styles and uses of the techniques at the same time. Yeah, that's uh, super exciting. I, I love to close the episode on that, in that feeling of what's coming and, and the possibilities are endless, as you said. Alejandro, thanks so much for sharing all these with us and I hope to have you in the future again in the show to see what you're up to and how these things have, have evolved. Maybe in a, in a few, <laughs> one, two years from now, a few months and we see what's changing and what's the state of AI. And yeah, let's stay in touch and thanks so much, Alejandro. Thank you, Hugo. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>